a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You know, keeping your head on straight in today's world, that is not an easy task. It's almost a full-time job in and of itself. But thankfully, I'm here to assist you. How can I do that? Well, not to brag, but each day I'm here dropping precision guided truth bombs and exploding dangerous myths. But most importantly, I'm providing you with resources to encourage you to think clearly and independently and to question everything about the narrative. Oh, it's a lot more fun than it sounds. You know, reveling in wrong think, you'll find a lot of great friends. You'll find, I, let me walk that back. You'll find great friends. I think we're still pretty much in the minority, but if you're okay with, you know, standing on your own, I think you're going to do just fine. I have some great partners in my sponsors who make this possible. They include Dixie Chiropractic, also HSLAmmo.com, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage and GovernYourCrypto.com. Well, you ready to take a ride today? Because we have a lot to cover. And I want to start with something that this may be more for my benefit than, than for you. Okay, I'm not, I'm not pointing at anybody and saying, yeah, you know, you really should consider this. But if you have ever found yourself just wrapped around the axle because of things that were going on on social media, you found yourself, you know, arguing to the death with a stranger on the Internet. This might be a message that, uh, that has some relevance for you. And here's the message. It's a lot easier to try to appear as a good person, in other words, to signal your virtue to the world, than it is to actually live as a good person. This is probably why so many people, you know, prefer all the outward accoutrements of, oh, look at me, I'm a good person, can't you see? Look at my avatar. That's a Ukrainian flag that tells you I am a good person, or it's a rainbow flag, or whatever the case may be. Paul Rosenberg, who is one of my favorite thinkers, has a really great take on this. And it's an essay titled, A Twitter Mob is a Religious Experience. Now, I know a lot of my listeners had kind of a religious experience over the weekend. So I want to, I want to, I want to share this with you and to just ask you to consider, does this ever apply to me? And he starts with a, with a picture of a tweet. And it's, it's a tweet from someone saying, people should not be treated differently because of their skin color. Oh, man, that is, I mean, that's brave, you know, to say something like that in this day and age when everybody is racist, right? I'm kidding. Okay. But the funny thing is this, there, there's parody here because there's a, a button there on Twitter, not just to, you know, like it or to retweet it, but what's this one? It says, send mob. <laughs> you know, there's some truth there. Paul Rosenberg says, I'll be brief, but I want to explain how social media mobs provide people with a religious experience. Now, he says, without this bit of understanding, he says, I don't think we can make proper sense of the new phenomenon. To put it simply, social media mobs transmute painful emotions into a belief in one's own righteousness. Now, believe it or not, that's what religious experiences do. To explain, he says, I'll use a fairly standard religious experience, the evangelical conversion, as a comparison. And he says, this is with my apologies to evangelicals. 
So number one, the convert is deeply affected, usually guilty, by the less than ideal facts of his or her own life. Number two, they are given a reason to believe that they can be something better by the sacrifice of Jesus to redeem them. Number three, once they accept that, they emerge as a new creature with righteousness conferred upon them by God himself. Now, he says, the person going through this comes to the other side feeling newly righteous. And so the process can be summarized as the transmutation of base emotions into righteousness. And the process turns upon the reason to believe. Now, he says, please bear in mind, I am not saying this is fraudulent or that it's the only religious experience. I'm just using it as an example. But his point is, this is the same process that we see in the Twitter mob. Now, the best example of this are the Twitter mobs centered on the COVID event. And he says, I'm not trying to slam either side with this. It's just such an overwhelming example that I can't begin with any other. So let's go through it in stages. The beginning state of this religious experience was fear. The social media algorithms ramped it up, of course, maximizing engagement, creating large groups of very frightened people. Number two, because there is no God in this process to confer righteousness, Righteousness had to be manufactured by creating Satan figures to oppose. Opposition to pure evil equals righteousness. So that role fell to those who resisted wearing masks and then passed to the unvaxxed. Number three, next came the reason to believe. And for the social media mob, it was behavioral, rising to the level of chemical. The confirmation of others has been a factor in all sorts of group experiences, but he says it was taken to a new level by the Facebook and Twitter algorithms and the bots pushing those algorithms. Likes, shares, and thumbs up are like little shots of dopamine. They're addictive, and they are powerful. This provided a more than sufficient reason to believe. Number four, in the end, reviling the noncompliant conferred righteousness upon the mob. Now, he says, what we see in this process, then, is fear being transmuted into righteousness. This is where the holy Karens <laughs> originate. He says, it's also worth noting that these, uh, breaking out of these groups can be very difficult. Here's a passage from Sam Keen's The Passionate Life that makes the point. Quote, it is disturbing for an individual to reject the tribe's claim to self-righteousness because it excludes him or her from the civil religion, the social immorality, immortality system, rather, and the ritual of scapegoating, in which the guilt is alleviated by being assigned to an outcast or enemy that the tribe may destroy in the name of God. End quote. Now, Paul Rosenberg says it's important to see that one religious experience of this type rolls directly into another. In this case, the mobs moved directly from the declining COVID experience into the new Ukraine experience. And he says, again, I'm not picking sides. I'm merely pointing out that the response to the war in Ukraine became an instant worldwide phenomenon, while the war in Yemen never did. Even World War II didn't start out with millions of young people carrying around the flags of a foreign country. Now, with fairly few exceptions, the people who now hold Putin as a devil figure are the same ones who held the unvaxxed as devil figures. The process has been the same, just the devil figures have been changed. Now, he says, having made my point, I'll stop here. I don't feel nearly as good writing what's wrong articles as I do with what's right pieces. But he says, I simply thought this one was important enough to publish. I don't want to look back years from now and think that I really should have done more. 
So he says, I'll give you one last fact by noting that policymakers are also part of these social media mobs. And their choices generate feedback that loops back to themselves, amping up with each iteration and leading to decisions that are badly out of proportion. So he says, even if you don't like my religious assertion for some reason, these social media systems very clearly furnish people with prepackaged group virtue. In the end, the whole exercise boils down to a simple assumption that complaining in the prescribed way makes you righteous. And that's just foolish. I just kind of want to let that percolate in for a moment here. Complaining in the prescribed way. If you you complain and moan, I was going to use another word, but I'm going to be family friendly here. If you complain in the correct manner or about the right people or about the right things, that's supposed to make you look very virtuous in the eyes of the public. And I suppose this is why so many people do it. So all I'm asking you to consider is, do I ever fall into this trap? I know I have. That's my hand in the air. You bet I have. But I'm trying to make a conscious effort not to be so pliable, not to be so easy to be manipulated into that kind of behavior. I think one of the things that it's going to come down to is you have to ask yourself, or at least pay attention and notice When you encounter someone who has a differing point of view, do you tend to get defensive? In fact, do you tend to go on the offensive? Is it important? This person has to agree with me. If they don't, you know what? They're they're part of the other team. They're they're evil. They're unrighteous. That's a really manipulative mindset. And most of us wouldn't recognize it unless it was pointed out. And I've been as guilty of it as anybody. But when you can get to the point where you know who you are, you know what you stand for so well that it doesn't matter if someone disagrees, even if they disagree strongly, even if they disagree to the point where they're calling you names and otherwise casting aspersions on you and your motives. When you're solid in your beliefs in that you have paid the price to know what you know, suddenly it's not so important that everybody else agree with you or that anybody else in particular agree with you. There's a steadiness. There's a a calmness that comes over you. Why should you worry? This doesn't mean your mind is closed. It just simply means I don't have to convince people I'm a good people. I'm a good people. I'm a good person (laughs) who done real good at English, no no doubt either. (laughs) But living as a good person definitely is much harder than simply trying to project that virtue on social media. That's something we shouldn't lose sight of. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm going to take a moment here just to uh, say a couple of words about Dixie Chiropractic. Very happy to welcome them on board as a sponsor of this show. And I want you to know I've got a link to their website, DixieCairo.com. It's right there in the show notes. This is Dr. Ward Wagner. Had the chance to talk with him last week. And, uh, you know, if you've ever had back injuries, you've been in a car accident or anything like this, you've had a bulging or herniated disc, yeah, or, you, or you suffer from neuropathy, 
This is one of the places where chiropractic can, can provide so much help and so much relief. Dixie Chiropractic has some great programs that can help you as well, but I want to direct you to their website so that you can check this out for yourself. Be it for car accident injuries or herniated discs, you know, that uh, they have some great $99 intro treatments, which include a massage. Please go to DixieChiro.com for more information. And when you talk to them, when you when you say, hey, I'm checking you out, make sure you mention, hey, I'm here because Brian was talking about you and said that uh, you guys can help me. All right, I'm going to continue on here with the idea about uh, virtue signaling. And I'm still very much of the opinion virtue signaling has has uh, become the path of least resistance to being a good person. It's so much easier to go onto social media and emote about what I am and who I stand, you know, what I stand for and, and, and who I am than to actually go out there and just be a really good person. Now, I've got an article here from Robert Kerner. This is from the Brownstone Institute. How signaling turns virtue into vice. I'm just going to hit some of the high points here. Robin Kerner says, in decades hence... Historians will no doubt identify plenty of cultural developments that defined our age. Perhaps the most obvious to us as we're living through it is the ubiquity of social media and the extent to which millennials and Gen Zers live in that space. Not too far behind, perhaps, is the focus on, or some might say obsession with, political causes that concern allegedly disadvantaged groups of individuals. The intersection of these two great phenomena is the posting of memeish declarations or visual social media profile modifications that gain short-term traction in response to an unjust act that's deemed to be reflective of a larger problem. So examples from the past two years. Some of you will remember this. Je suis Charlie. Je, let's try that again. Je suis Charlie with the tricolor coloring of social media profile images. I am Charlie from the Charlie Hebco killings a few years ago in France, or hashtag bring back our girls, and many others. Frankly, if I can confess this, I, I find myself saying hashtag me too to my kids whenever I'm in agreement with them. I think we should go get a hamburger, hashtag me too. You know, now that's not what it was originally about, but it sticks. So on Blackout Tuesday, June 2nd of 2020, tens of millions of people posted a black square on their Instagram and other social media accounts. And the reason for doing so, according to the apparent originators of the idea, was to indicate that one was refraining from spending time on social media for a day and instead using that time to educate oneself about the plight of African-Americans in the United States. This is following the death of George Floyd. Now, of course, many and probably most of the posters of a black square did no more than post the square. Participation in a cause with others is well known to provide positive emotions. Posting that black square or similarly splashing hashtag bring back our girls over a social media profile can provide those who do so the feeling that they've done something of moral value without the need to spend any time, money, energy, or creative energy to solve the moral problem. Posting on social media isn't, is, is as easy for people who've never done anything practical to dr- address the targeted issue as for those who have. And while millions of people do so at once, or when they do that, media coverage of the mass participation contributes to a general impression of the bigness of the response. But the effectiveness and therefore morality of such participation necessarily depends on its actual political effect. On the one hand, political effect is superficially correlated with the visible public expression of popular demand, which is why protests could work. On the other hand, though, 
The correlation depends on other factors, such as the risks taken, costs incurred, or inconvenience for politicians generated by the protesters. Now, Robin Kerner says, A person who spent many hours, weeks, or even years as an activist against racial injustice, sexual harassment, Boko Haram, or the like, because an issue has moved her, and because she's paid a price in time, money, or effort to tackle it, is entitled to post whatever she chooses. However, it's highly unlikely that such a person would be content to use someone else's image or few-word meme and then move on to the next new thing. Rather, such a person will likely choose her own words or modes of expression to articulate her passion, thoughts, experiences, work, and most importantly, knowledge and contribution to righting a wrong that she has engaged independently. I think that's a fair assumption there. The point here is that the cause of a post isn't the cause in a post. So Robin Kerner says to examine the moral and political effect of a declaration fad, there's value in understanding the causes of a person's declaration. Even a sincere person who really means what he posts, even if he's carefully questioned his motivation for posting, even if he's done hours of research on the topic, even if he's going to do more than that post or just post that meme on social media accounts, even if all of those things is posting that particular thing at that particular time only because everyone else is. Now, this must be so because everyone else is engaging in the fad is both the direct cause and the immediate cause of any particular individual's thought about doing it. That is the but-for test that the Supreme Court recently used to declare illegal the firing of employees on account of their sexual orientation and gender identity. Now, why does this matter? Well, certainly a good deed does not fail to be a good deed just because many others are doing it at the same time or because those who acted later were prompted to do so by those who acted before. Moreover, the fact that everyone else is doing something is a positive reason to do the same thing if the political effect of the action scales positively and non-linearly with the number of participants. This non-linear scaling is why public repeated large-scale protests can work. But declaring one's support for a cause by posting these phrases takes next to no effort. Meaning that even if it does next to no good, the small amount of good might well represent a decent political or moral return on time and energy invested by each individual in participating. However, none of these considerations support participation in a declaration fad if its effect, especially on the motivating issue, is or could be at any scale negative. Now, is that possible? I mean, one can easily imagine the engagement of millions of people with a declaration fad could prevent a false sense that a problem has been moved closer to a solution, even though no action directly follows from their actions. Okay, that's a good point. In most, in most jurisdictions, a driver who passes an accident is not required to stop to provide help. However, in many, stopping at the scene of an accident as if to provide help and then not doing so is a crime. This is because sub- subsequent drivers, or drivers by rather, who would already, who also would have provided help, may believe they don't need to do so because look, somebody else has stopped and help's already being provided. So the operative principle is that to appear to help while not helping is morally and practically worse than doing nothing because it indirectly causes harm. I don't think I've ever heard it put quite this way, but that actually makes a lot of sense to me. So how many people would uh, post a black square, for instance, or a blue and yellow flag, or, you know, something to show their solidarity with the cause of the moment, but yet would not spend time to learn about, uh, for instance, uh, the Uyghurs in in China? 
If it's not your message, it's not your meaning, is what Robin Kerner is saying. There's different types of virtue. In fact, I wanted to get to this one. We'll have to come back to it after the break. Positive, negative, and cheap. Glaring and great injustice elicits glaring and great virtue, but alas, also glaring and cheap virtue because it provides an opportunity to get something of value without having to make the slightest bit of difference or having to pay the slightest price. That something of value is the feeling of caring, of being right, of being good, and it's also the moral standing within one's peer group. So what? Well, the problem here is that, at least the moral problem is that regardless of intent, a participant in a declarative fad is knowingly and personally benefiting from an injustice without actually doing anything to right the wrong from which that personal benefit is being extracted. This is one of the reasons why I will not chant in unison and jump on the bandwagon with everybody else. I'll do it if I think the time is right. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage located in St. George, Utah. Hey, if you are within the sound of my voice and looking for a mortgage anywhere in the state of Utah or the state of Idaho, I want you to talk to Heather Turner. There's an email link in my show notes under my sponsors, or you can call her at 435-703-4522. The reason I want you to talk to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage is because Heather brings decades of experience to the table. She has the clout and a very great company to work with to get you the loan you need and to make it happen quickly. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So I want to come back here for a moment to Robin Kerner's article about how virtue signaling turns virtue into vice. And yes, we've all been guilty of this at some level, But the idea that, well, hey, look, everybody's on the bandwagon. I guess I can jump on and, you know, be a part of this this movement. That's all great if you're aware and, hey, maybe you're even praying for the person. I don't know. You know, that's I'm not going to say that there's anything wrong with that. But to give the impression that, well, I I posted this Ukrainian flag and therefore I'm doing my part. Are you really? I mean, have you actually done anything to right the wrong or, you know, are you just, you know, jumping on the bandwagon? The point here is to do so is to benefit very slightly from the very injustice at issue without providing at least as much benefit to someone else, which could at least justify one's participation. And the painful truth that Robin Kerner is pointing out here is that's not virtue. It's not even cheap virtue. It's negative virtue, which I guess we could also call vice. So how do you distinguish between these types of virtue? Well, here's a helpful rule of thumb. True virtue does more to improve the condition or experience of the one suffering injustice than it does to improve the condition or experience of the person speaking out or taking action against it. Negative virtue does the exact opposite. I don't know about you, but that seems to make a lot of sense to me. Since there's always an upside for those who make statements of the morally banal that their friends will see, this rule of thumb specifies the need to determine that the maker of such a statement identifies the upside for the people he's purporting to support that actually exceeds the upside for himself. And to fail to do so is not to help any victims of any harm, but rather with the best will in the world 
to use their victimhood to help oneself. This explains, of course, why some people, particularly those who are not used to performing the private, which is what social media necessitates, feel so uneasy about such fads and would feel hypocritical or otherwise morally compromised about participating in them. By the way, this is reflected in the biblical verse, Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Now, Robin Kerner says, could there be a more declarative bandwagon that could be jumped on without violating the above moral rule of thumb? The answer is likely in the affirmative, but the declaration would have to satisfy a simple condition. It would not make a moral demand on the rest of the world without making a demand on the person who posted it. And the person who posted it would then have to make best efforts to meet that moral demand. Now, the declaration would demand a standard of or change in behavior that the poster would be inviting others to hold her to. In making the moral and practical effort to hold herself to that standard, she turns her post from public performance to personal improvement with political effect. That is brilliant. Take your pick. There's a lot of causes going on right now. Are you going to just change your avatar on social media or pass along the latest meme showing, look, look, I care too. I'm helping. Or would you invite people to hold you accountable? for providing value for the people who really need that help. The actual victims. Pretty good stuff. Like I say, this is probably more for me than it is for you, so please don't feel like I'm pointing my finger at you. You ought to do something different here. I'm just saying it's a real easy trap to fall into, and this is one of the reasons why. I, I People who are, are, you know, out there guilting everybody on social media, you're not doing enough, or how dare you say that? It's like... I really can't take you seriously if all you're trying to do is is portray yourself as a good person, but you can't be bothered to act like a good person. I guess it's one of those cases where actions speak louder than words. All right, shifting gears. You know, whether you grew up in a railroad town or not, you will likely understand the desire to not be from the wrong side of the tracks. Annie Holmquist has a really fresh take on this concept as it applies to trades versus college. Thought you might enjoy this. She says, one of the best things to come out of the COVID-19 pandemic is the changing educational landscape. Many parents are now homeschooling their children, realizing that doing so is not as daunting as they thought, while many other parents have seen the type of crummy curricula their children are being fed and are demanding that their elected school board members make some changes. And then we have the college scene. More than a million students have held off from going to college since the pandemic problems arose. That's according to NPR. And many of those students are seeking training in the trades instead. Their skills are in high demand, too, as nearly 90% of contractors are desperate for competent workers. In this development, she says, we see an interesting switch in thinking. In the past, those who pursued training in the trades were looked down upon, almost as if they were from the wrong side of the tracks, as the old adage goes. Now, however, the college side of the tracks is turning into the less desirable one for several reasons. Some are pandemic-related and may eventually disappear, such as increased online classes, repeated quarantines, mandatory COVID vaccination and testing, even masks. 
Other reasons, such as the mountain of debt that college brings and that many radical professors with the ideologies that they teach have been in existence for some time and will likely only continue. She says the good news is that Americans are beginning to recognize these differences and they're not content to stay on the wrong side of the tracks for long. Ex-communist and author Whitaker Chambers put it well in his autobiography, Witness, saying, quote, In America, most of us begin on the wrong side of the railroad tracks. The meaning of America, what made it the wonder of history and the hope of mankind, was that we were free not to stay on the wrong side of the railroad tracks. If within us there was something that empowered us to grow, we were free to grow and go where we could. Only we were not ever, we were not free ever to forget ever to despise our origins. They were our roots. They made us a nation. End quote. Now, Annie Holmquist says, it is in those words that we see a major reason that the former right side of the tracks, college, is looking less attractive. It is this side that encourages us in its lecture halls to despise and forget our origins. Now, the other side, however, by virtue of moving students beyond the confines of a classroom with a radical professor at the head of it, enables students to breathe free and even embrace the roots of American life. They learn to appreciate hard work and value the character and virtue required to run a business, to work with their hands, and to deal with the public on a regular basis. Furthermore, those who work in skilled trades are required to engage in true critical thinking as they face real-life challenges such as how to correct a mistake made in measuring a board, how to lay out a tight space in a remodeling project, or how to turn an angry customer into a happy one. This was once a land where every sane person knew how to build a shelter, grow food, and entertain one another, author John Taylor Gatto once wrote. And although he didn't say it outright, the implication is that we were happier and more successful when that was the case. She asks, is it possible that this surging interest in the trades is a gleam of hope that we may be headed in the right direction toward the kind of work and mindset that would make such happiness and success possible for our country's citizens once again? You know, I've seen this trend too, and maybe this is just a product of the crowd that I run with, although even within my own household, there's there's a little bit of a division here on, you know, you go to college and you get a professional degree, and that's the only key to success. You've got to pass through that portal if you want to have a good and successful life. Now, my wife is a public school teacher, and that's, that is the, the model upon which she has based her career. But I've also seen with my own eyes that... Uh, Not every one of my kids is interested in going to college and getting that professional degree. Some of them are actually better at actually just doing and diving in. And uh, and I've got at least two boys who really are good at just uh, working with their hands. They like to build and create. Now tell me there's not need for those kinds of skills. I just have to wonder, why did we allow ourselves to be lulled into this idea that, well, you know, but people who get their hands dirty, well, you know, they're, they're not as good as the people whose hands are clean and soft. I'm saying this as someone who has not nearly enough calluses on his hands, but thank goodness for those people who know how to get their hands dirty, people who know how to fix things, how to build things, how to fabricate. They keep the world running for those who are, you know, in the white-collar sector, the Zoom class, I guess, is as we're sometimes called. But stop looking at college as, you know, this is the be-all, end-all to having a successful life. That degree, as impressive as it is, 
is mainly a badge of compliance. You may be an awesome person and have a stellar career, but let's not mistake those credentials for something that they're really not. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'd like to thank HSLAmmo.com for being one of my sponsors. You know, I'm really surprised that, uh, you know, people who are into precious metals, I'm surprised they don't spend more time talking about the other precious metals. Lead, copper, brass. Because those are the precious metals that you can use to convert money into skill. And I'm talking skill at arms, which is actually kind of a fun pursuit, but it also brings peace of mind. And at uncertain times, you know, having skill at arms is one of those things that can bring you peace of mind and knowing that you can handle the worst if, you know, if it were to come. Well, HSL Ammo provides you with the necessary components there to to get out there and to recreate, to make a joyous noise for freedom and to build your skill at arms. So check them out. Click on the website link. If you run into Spencer Worthington as you're running around in southern Utah, tell him hi. Tell him, hey, Brian's bragging about you on the air again. He's the kind of friend I think I'm, I'm proud to brag about, and I would encourage you get to know him and his company, HSL Ammo, just a little bit better. So I, I beat this drum a lot about the cashless society, but I also see a very clear push to move us towards some kind of a digital currency that will essentially open the door to um, more complete control of not just our finances, but basically every aspect of our lives. Every transaction noted, you know, cataloged and taxed accordingly. Maybe this is just kind of on my mind because we were doing our taxes this weekend. And, oh, my gosh. It's <clears throat> it's not fun. I don't mean to sound ungrateful, but for what I get for my hard-earned money, it feels for, for all the world like government is taking my money and then trying to use it to, to fashion better and stronger chains for me. And if I'm supposed to be thankful for that, uh, I'm, I'm just not quite making the connection about how that's supposed to work. But I have a great sense of concern that this cashless society is likely to become a reality and sooner rather than later. And it's going to be sold to us in the name of convenience. Oh, but, you know, the convenience is going to outweigh everything. And Well, Peter Cattle says a cashless society is what will actually leave millions of people struggling. He says a report into the potential effects of implementing a cashless society has found that millions of people would be left struggling with many vulnerable people being heavily reliant on physical tender. A report published last Wednesday found that a shift to a cashless society would considerably disadvantage and disenfranchise millions of people. It would also risk harming many vulnerable people reliant on physical notes and coins. Now, in particular, the study found that 15 million people in the UK are heavily reliant on physical currency for budgeting purposes, with ATM use also remaining high in some of the country's most economically vulnerable areas compared to pre-pandemic levels. According to research conducted by the Royal Academy of the Arts, a number of demographics are extremely reliant on the use of physical cash, including older people as well as many young people who use tangible currency to help with budgeting. And by the way, Dave, uh, Dave Ramsey would be one who's, uh, who's definitely a big fan of that. So what is a person to do? 
What are we supposed to do in this case? Well, you know, according to Peter Cattle, he says the research found while ATM use went overall, overall use rather went down during the Chinese coronavirus pandemic and has not returned to pre-2020 levels, one in seven people found themselves using cash more because of the crisis. Ultimately, one in five people reportedly said they would struggle in a cashless society with the researchers saying that there's an urgent need for legislation ensuring people's access to physical cash in the future. For millions of people, their relationship with cash is critical to the way they manage their weekly budget. That's according to Mark Hall, who penned the paper, who said, despite online banking and shopping becoming more common, our research shows the percentage of the population wholly reliant on cash is unchanged in the past three years. So it's vital that the dash to digital doesn't disenfranchise anyone, especially with the cost of living putting such significant strain on family crisis, family finances, finances rather right now. People are increasingly using less cash and embracing contactless and digital payments, noted John Howells. He's the CEO of ATM network Link regarding the study. However, it's clear that digital does not currently work for everyone and for those living on tight budgets where every penny counts. Well, there's no better alternative to notes and coins, and they're in no rush to turn to money management tools. Now, I guess I'll just out myself as the stick in the mud that I really am, but, you know, for the longest time, I really, uh, I resisted using electronic means. And and I don't know how to describe this other than I just, I didn't like, I didn't want to use a, a, a card. I had no desire <laughs> to use, to use my, my uh, debit card. It just didn't uh, make sense to me. But now, you know, it's it's the easiest thing in the world. I mean, I, I'm not quite to, to the point where, oh, yes, you know, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to, you know, tap my card. I, my kids are really good with this. I mean, they'll use the apps, you know, even just going through the drive-thru at Taco Time or whatever. They They really know what they're doing. But I've also been through Dave Ramsey's, uh, uh, what is it, Financial Peace University. And... There's something about using cash that will keep you much more accountable to yourself when it comes to um, the money that you spend. And you think about it, how easy is it to, you know, just swipe your card or, you know, insert the chip or whatever it is, tap it, you know, do it on your phone. You're not actually, you know, taking something physically out of your wallet or out of an envelope and handing it over. Whereas with cash, there's a there's actual sensation of of I know it's just paper, right? But that there's actual currency passing from your hands. You're counting it out. The sense of what you are spending is very real. And for that reason, it seems like it would make sense that a person um, would would be a little more reluctant to to spend frivolously. Right. If all you got to do is tap the card, well, it's really no big deal. I'll just, you know, tap the card here and everything's great. And, you know, it's it's uh, I don't feel the pain of that leaving my wallet. So from an accountability standpoint, this is a good way to go. Now, there's also the darker side of cash gives you privacy. And I know people say, well, that's why drug dealers and gangsters like cash. And yes, yes, and why the U.S. government sends, you know, billions in cash to, you know, certain dictatorships. But hey, 
Is it wrong for you to have privacy in your financial transactions? I mean, should government be a party to every transaction that takes place? And if the answer is, well, no, hey, where do you draw the line then? Seems like there's there's got to be somewhere to draw the line. And that, to me, that's the, the biggest downside of the digital society is that it puts someone else in an oversight position over your spending. So it's not just the old folks who still write checks at the checkout. You know, it's not just, you know, the people who want to, you know, have paper money because that's the way grandpa did it. It's not the ones who use coins, only silver or gold. Although I have great respect for those who do. I, you know, don't, don't let this get around, but I carry a, a gold coin. I'm sorry, not gold, a silver coin, a silver, one ounce silver round in my pocket. And I have for about the last four years. I was asked to speak at an event a few years ago, and one of the guys who came up to me afterwards and was thanking me for for my remarks pressed a uh, silver, an ounce of silver into my hand and said, here, this is my appreciation for you coming and being here tonight. And I was like, wow, that is really cool. And I've carried it in my pocket just as a daily reminder for me of what real money is, what it feels like. Every so often I'll take it out and I'll I'll plunk it on the counter and, and, and it makes a different sound. I don't know. Maybe I can maybe I can demonstrate this for you. Let's see. All right. Here it is. Listen to this. Yeah, a quarter doesn't sound like that. Silver has a ring to it. There's something almost musical. So I'm a fan of, of you know, getting back to real money. But I think the biggest concern that I have here about a cashless society is that it puts someone else in control. Your dollars only exist or your currency only exists in the form of electrons, which can be controlled and switched on or off by somebody else. I mean, Sweden has become very heavily reliant on digital transactions, and there are benefits that are linked with this. Lower infrastructure costs, easier time to go after criminal enterprises. Australia, at one stage, even considered a cash ban law, which would put a legal limit of $10,000 on any physical payments with any transaction amounting to more than that being rendered an offense. By the way, that's not looking good for Australia. They, they also locked down harder than anybody else when it came to COVID. But the bottom line is, if you want privacy, if you want control of your money, going fully digital is not necessarily the best way to go. Ideally, you can have the best of all worlds, right? The convenience of digital, but still be able to fall back on real money and cash. Just notice that that loophole is getting smaller and smaller, and I don't think the reasons are necessarily good for why that's happening. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Glad you could join us for another experience of reveling in wrong think. You may be asking yourself, okay, who is this guy? that I should give a rat's patootie about to anything he says or shares? And the answer is, I'm nobody special. I'm not rich, famous, handsome, well-educated. 
I'm just somebody who cares about the truth enough that I speak it on a daily basis and do the best I can to encourage others to seek it for themselves. In other words, don't believe everything I say. Don't take it at face value and just believe, oh, well, if Brian said it, it's got to be true. I want you to think as clearly and independently as possible because these things matter. I also want to give a shout out to my sponsors, including sewingandquiltingcenter.com. There's something coming up this coming weekend. That would be Friday, April 8th and Saturday the 9th at the Dixie Center in St. George, Utah. The Dixie Quilt Guild is putting on a quilt show. And for those of you who've heard about long arm quilting machines, especially the handy quilter long arm, you really ought to go and see for yourself firsthand what it does. Now, usually these hands-on events will uh, cost money and for two days. Well, at this quilt show, you'll get a more summarized hands-on demonstration and still get the best-of-year prices. The Sewing and Quilting Center actually has four booths, so they can bring in four different machines. You can actually sit down and test drive it yourself. You may want to get in touch with them. Click on the link I provide in the show notes. Call the store. Reserve some time on Friday or Saturday. It'll be very fun and informative. And if you can't make it to the Dixie Center, go by their store on Bluff Street and enjoy some amazing two-day-only prices. I know that uh, people are stopping in and telling Eric, hey, we're hearing about you, but uh, here's a chance to go get some hands-on experience. Go give it a try. Sewingandquiltingcenter.com. So how do we prioritize what we, we have lost over the last couple of years? And I'm not trying to wallow in loss, but I'm actually trying to just kind of tally up the costs. And, you know, I, I think of some of the different things we've lost. Okay, purchasing power of the dollar, definitely we've lost a lot of that. Um, the freedom to, to fly without wearing a face mask, gone, at least for now. What about trust? Chet Richards says America is suffering from a gigantic loss of trust. And this one kind of sets me back in my chair a little bit because can you have a functional, healthy society without trust? Chad Richards starts with a quote from Scottish economist Adam Smith. There is a great deal of ruin in a nation. Now, when Adam Smith talks about a great deal of ruin, he's saying a successful nation has a large margin, margin rather, or cushion between its current condition and its destruction. America, spanning a continent as it does, is blessed with an abundance of natural resources. And in practice, those natural margins exist only because people have the skills needed to exploit those resources and trust in one another. Now, that said, America's resources should make it possible for our nation to be independent of the rest of the world, should that become necessary. Now, there's an old joke that comes, uh, an old joke that food comes from the supermarket. There must be some magician in the back room who waves his wand and creates all the wonders we find on the shelves. But, of course, the reality is even more fantastic. There's an astoundingly complex web of human skills and interactions that lie behind each of the products offered by the market. It's a network of trust. So consider a loaf of bread. Farmers plant and grow wheat using tools, water, and fertilizer. Those tools, in turn, require the skills of heavy industry to fabricate, and they require energy to run. Now, that energy comes mainly from petroleum products. This requires more skills, tools, and industrial support. Wheat must be delivered to bakeries and then to the markets, and that, too, requires energy. Finally, sophisticated organizing and financing makes this all possible. I mean, that's some magic wand, don't you think? And all of this is just for one product. Our highly complex civilization now depends equally on the fantastic web of information technology 
as well as hands-on skill and trust. Now, the good news is it works, but the bad news is it makes civilization increasingly fragile. Break the complex web, and there is no recovery. Now, some people just don't get it. Many political types believe that our margins are infinite. Nothing can destroy our network of trust. The nation will always survive no matter what they do. But this is false. Mismanagement can dissipate a nation's margin. Nations fall. Empires fall. Entire cultures are swept into oblivion. And it can happen to us as well. Chet Richards says the common man and his skills, not the politician, is the one who really counts. And unfortunately, these skills are now mostly lacking among today's wealth-sheltered political and corporate leaders. Few of these leaders understand the nature of the society they're managing. Effective leadership happens when the leaders have worked their way up through the ranks and have mastered each part of the enterprise. So what we need, and rarely have, are leaders who have actually gotten their hands dirty. How about someone who knows how to drive a bulldozer and work a backhoe? How about someone who's taken great risks and built a successful business from scratch? Anyone we know? Democracy can only function in an environment of trust. Trust is the glue of society. And sadly, in recent years, trust has been deliberately frayed almost to the breaking point by those clueless leaders. In a healthy society, most of us trust our family. We trust that those we meet in passing intend no harm. As students, we trust our teachers. As employees, we trust our bosses and value our colleagues. As citizens, we trust our elected leaders. We trust that government is our servant. We trust that elections are fair. We trust that businesses exist to serve us. We trust that the value of the dollar is secure. We trust that justice is impartial. We trust that we will remain free. And then he asks, how much of this do we still trust? Ooh, oh, that one's going to leave a mark. Loss of trust, he says, is induced mainly by progressives. They beset us with a litany of destructive fantasies, climate catastrophe, critical race theory, cancel culture, wokeness, transgenderism, defund the police. All these are intended to control us. It's no surprise these cultish ideologies originated in the academic social sciences. Just glance at their turgid technical literature to understand why. Now, naturally, all these utopian ideas are a magnet for the neurotic left. These notions posit an ideal world. But such a world, having reached supposed perfection, is static, despotic, and unstable. Civilization cannot survive stasis. Modern society is by nature dynamic. Stability, as opposed to stasis, requires constant adaptation to a rapidly changing environment. In any competent army, it's the sergeants who win the battle, not the generals. In a complex society, only at the lowest levels is the needed information available, and the reactions are quick enough to maintain dynamic stability. Key decisions are made at the bottom of society, not at the top. This is the dynamism of the free market. At government and corporate policy levels, the information and speed of response are simply not there. A stable, modern society must be free and democratic, not authoritarian. The political class must be servants, not masters. In other words, freedom is the antithesis of utopia. After all, if people are free to do what they please, then the result is certain to be chaotic. 
So believe, so believe the progressive utopians. An ordered, static society cannot tolerate chaotic freedom. Actually, the supposed chaos of a free society is self-organization in action. Free people make a multitude of decisions which collectively keep things going. So why does this work? Well, because there's collective wisdom in crowds. People have a myriad of life experiences. But there are some underlying factors that shape us all and influence our judgments. Democracy, together with the free market, distills those hidden factors. It keeps society on a relatively stable and successful foundation. But this dual foundation is abhorrent to dark age utopians. How can there be the desired static tranquility with all this democratic froth? Whatever they may say, progressives loathe democracy, and they'll do their utmost to destroy it. Their behavior in the 2020 election and since proves the point. Now, he says, I don't know who won the 2020 presidential election, but I have a pretty good idea who did. The progressives tell me who really did by their behavior. They adamantly refuse to allow fair audits of the election. You oppose an audit only if you know you have cheated enough to win. And we know from overwhelming testimony that cheating was rampant. For the past two years, we've been the victims of a totalitarian experiment, the COVID emergency. If three years ago someone had predicted that a two-week emergency declaration to flatten the curve would stretch into two full years of tyrannical government oppression, he would have been laughed out of town. Yet it happened. The mechanism used to gain obedience was to induce fear. Fear works. Many people still wander around wearing placebo masks. Now, unfortunately, I've got to tap the brakes, but we're going to come back to this commentary here in just a few moments. Again, this is from Chet Richards. And there is a link in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. By the way, if you'd like to subscribe to said show notes, all you have to do is visit my website. Down at the bottom of the show notes is a big subscribe button. Give me your email address and I'll drop a copy in your inbox each and every day that I do the show. Stay with us. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing with you an article from Chet Richards, and it's how America is suffering from a gigantic loss of trust. I don't think that's doom and gloom to note that. I think that's actually a pretty fair analysis and diagnosis of what ails us. And he uses some examples, you know, the the election of 2020. And look, like him, I don't know who won the election, but I know that there's enough protesting about you can't even look at or revisit how that election was conducted, that it it makes me very curious that uh, there wasn't some very serious fraud taking place. In fact, if I could just be so bold, I don't trust I don't trust the system, not one bit. And it's not just Democrats that that engaged in this. I think you could even find this uh, true of Republicans, depending on which state you're in. For some reason, those people who are in power right now seem very determined. Oh, we don't want people looking too closely. You might start to doubt us. Yeah, that's kind of the point. We are doubting you. (laughs) And that's why we want a closer look to see if you're really telling us the truth. Then, of course, there was covid and how fear was used to, to gain obedience. People still wander around wearing masks today.
As Chet Richards points out here, he says people have been jailed, businesses ruined, careers destroyed, life savings obliterated, children abused, many lives lost from drug addiction, suicides, and compulsory inoculation with an experimental vaccine. That's in quotation marks, by the way. Our human skill margins have been depleted. Our trust has been eroded. And all this because some unethical bureaucrats in the government gave unscrupulous politicians the excuse to impose flat-out tyranny in response to a medical emergency. Progressives applaud. Let's make this situation permanent, they say. Almost as bad as government malfeasance, big tech delights in its power of censorship. They used it to distort information about the COVID pandemic. That worked, so why not go whole hog and forbid all discussion of disagreeable ideas, power, and control? It feels wonderful. There's no freedom in a society with effective censorship. COVID hit the country's trust in other ways. Profligate spending to cover for the government shutting down the economy during these two years has driven the debt to an unsustainable level. Inflation is higher than the 1970s. Most people are being unconstitutionally robbed by this inflation. At the same time, with government-sponsored illegal immigration, our Constitution's protection against foreign invasion has been subverted. So Chet Richards says, for the majority of our citizens, trust in this administration and its politicized agencies has been broken. Polls predict an electoral bloodbath in the next two elections, and he says, let's hope so. That will be part of the correction necessary to regain the health of society and rebuild our devastated margins. May these elections put us on track to restore our free nation, regain our individual freedom, and renew our trust. Now, I don't want to sound like uh, I'm just, you know, well, I don't want to sound defeatist on this, but I don't think we're going to vote our way out of this one. I really believe that the solutions we're looking for are going to involve focusing on building what comes next. And that's something that you can start with right where you're standing at this moment. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, you totally have to disengage. I'm just saying the amount of time and energy you put into elections could also be better spent in other more effective areas. And I'll leave it up to you to determine, you know, where where could my time or effort be better spent? Just know, the politicians are not coming to save you. There is no political savior who will come to save you. I think at this point, our best hope is to build parallel institutions that make the existing political structure obsolete. They're still not going to want to let us let us leave. But if enough people can turn their backs and say, nah, I don't need what you're selling, it takes the wind right out of their sails. All right, shifting gears once again. Maintaining your sense of perspective can be a challenge. That's true even when things are going well, but it's much harder to do during times of crisis. Got an article here from Lewis Doveland reminding us to keep the big picture in mind. He says, we're increasingly seeing a new term being used by thinking writers when it comes to both global and national politics. What it is, or what is it, and how should we look at it, rather? He says, the term the big picture basically answers the question, if we continue to follow this societal, economical, and cultural path, where do we end up as a society? Now, in reverse, you can use the concept to define the desired end state and work backward to see the necessary steps to attain it. Now, there are two big pictures at play in America today, and they are both completely incompatible. He says, I call the first big picture, A, 
or free individual freedoms. It follows the concepts of our founders and constitution, which built our prosperous society. This is how it works. The individual is the smallest unit and has full sets of rights and manifold freedoms. It is a bottom-up society, where the individual votes upward to the state level, with the states retaining their federated constitutional rights of control. Now, this is how America was designed and has operated for 250 years. Maintaining that framework produces free market capitalism, private property rights, and the guarantee of all of our freedoms listed in the Bill of Rights, especially freedom of speech, assembly, and petition. Now, the second big picture, or big picture B, is totalitarian socialism. Following the concepts of socialism, Marxism, and progressivism, where the smallest unit of society is the group identity, and where all power is concentrated at the top in the hands of the elites in a totalitarian structure, individuals have no meaningful rights including private property, speech, and petition, and must comply with the diktats of the elite or be shunned from society, if not outright killed, as history demonstrates. So this is the big-picture group of, of, of groups, rather, such as avowed Marxists, leftists, globalists, and those using the oxymoronic term democratic socialists. To achieve their big picture B requires a total collapse of America's society, economy, and government structure. Note how everything they do contributes to this collapse. Now, it isn't too late to stop it. But he says we must be focused in our actions. As you look and listen very carefully to the statements and words of leftists, be specifically aware of their use and misuse of language, their control over the educational curriculum and system, the differences between conservative values and those of socialist, leftist, Marxist, communist, and feudalists. Which of the big pictures takes us to any of them? He says the key thing to remember is that every tiny issue is important. It is all interrelated and nothing is standalone. Because of the left misuse of language, most of these items are not what they seem to be. Remember, they must collapse America's structures if they are to replace America with their nirvana. And everything they do drives toward that end. For example, you could look to the massive flood of illegal refugees coming across our southern border and be told it's only sympathetic to help the less fortunate. Yet in the big picture, this issue not only supports the Marxist goals of societal collapse by overwhelming the system, but it's also highly unfair to our poorest wage earners as they see their jobs going to people who aren't even citizens. The same is true for the sympathetic preference given to transgendered women who dominate women's sports, an idea that ignores the impact on and cruelty to the very women competitors who see their hopes dashed against unassailable odds after training for years. Meanwhile, the real goal is breaking down our societal structures. See, attaining the big picture B destination ends in poverty for all but the elites, along with the loss of nearly all personal freedoms and a totalitarian state. Leftists employ speech codes, doxing, violence, the heckler's veto, job loss and suppression of anything but the correct, in other words, leftist answer to any question. Lewis Dovlin says the key takeaway from this brief article is to be fully aware of the total picture, not just the single component being presented out of context. When presented with a new request, especially one that includes compassion for any group identity, he says, step back and take the 30,000-foot overview of where it all fits together. And you'll know when your pushback strikes a nerve because you'll be called an ad hominem slur like racist or homophobe. But he says, that's when you double down. 
Got a link to the article in the show notes. Definitely some food for thought here. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Going to take a moment here to uh, talk about lifesavingfood.com. This one is on my mind a lot, and, and I'm going to confess, I have a daughter who lives in Europe, and as of today, food prices where she lives have gone up 22.5%. I mean, it starts today, and they could go as high as 50% in the very near future. That's 50% higher than they were last week. So, um, you know, when food is costing a lot more, like significantly more, for that matter, if you live in a country which absolutely and legally forbids you from stocking up on food, they call it hoarding, but you're not allowed to stock up on more than you need for, you know, a, just a few days at a time. I guess you could see my concern about, boy, that, that could turn into a real scary situation really quick. I don't like the thought of my daughter and her husband or their daughter being hungry. I don't like the thought of anybody being hungry. So if you have the opportunity to prepare while there is still time and there is plentiful supplies and, you know, yes, the costs are going up, but food storage is a great way to have those needed stores. And those needed stores of food translate into greater self-reliance on your part, including the ability to say no thank you to whatever bureaucrat comes along with a clipboard insisting you're going to have to do this if you want to eat. Wouldn't it be nice to just wave them along and say, yeah, well, we're covered. Move along. These aren't the droids you're looking for. Click on lifesavingfood.com. I know it's, it sounds like, Brian, you're, you're, you're scaring me here. My goal isn't to make you fearful, but I do want you to understand the gravity of the situation is increasing. In fact, we're going to talk about this right now. Making fun of preppers has kind of been a favorite pastime for a lot of folks, particularly in the mainstream. But, so they consider that, you know, more the realm of conspiracy kooks. Oh, I see you're into, you're into preparedness, huh? Theodore Dalrymple has an excellent article called A New Age of Hardship. I want you to listen to what he's saying here. He says, never has the contrast between the scale of world events and my little personal concerns been so great. While millions flee bombardment and the world economy faces implosion with all the hardship that such an implosion will inevitably bring in its wake. He says, I do my exercises twice a day for 20 minutes to avoid the muscular stiffness and joint pains that a certain minor illness from which I've begun to suffer would otherwise cause. Furthermore, I anxiously taste the fish soup, which I've just made, to test whether it has enough salt. God forbid it should have too much. That would be an irrecoverable disaster. He says, my life is composed of such pettiness. But of course, it wouldn't help anyone if very much if I desisted from my daily round. The bombardments and the fleeing would go on regardless. He says, I learned or taught myself this lesson in personal insignificance early in my life when I was a horrible little child. I was told that I should eat up the food on my plate because there were hungry children in Africa. How, I asked, would it help them if I ate up? The potato on my plate divided between the hungry children, even if it could be delivered to them, which seemed doubtful, would not assuage their hunger at all. Now, he says, I realized only decades later that I was told to eat up, not to help the children in Africa, but because I should never take the food on my plate for granted. 
It's difficult for people who've never known shortage to imagine it. But he says this was not explained to me at the time, so I was pleased with my own smart reply. However, he says, I learned another lesson from this. While the Bible tells us that a soft answer turneth away wrath, I discovered that a clever answer increaseth it, especially when it cometh from the mouth of a horrible little child. As the Bible goes on to tell us, grievous words stir up anger, and there are no more no words more grievous than those of a child who thinks himself clever. In this connection, he says, I remember an acquaintance of mine who was homeschooling his children. An inspector arrived at his house to check that he was really teaching his children. The bureaucracy does not like anyone to escape its clutches. The inspector, a woman, asked his 10-year-old daughter what she was reading. David Copperfield, she replied. Ooh, I hated that as a child, said the inspector, no doubt in hope of uncovering evidence of the father's cruelty toward his daughter. I love it, said the child. I expect that's because I'm more intelligent than you. Now, to return to our subject, however, he says, I did as a child listen to the story of a relative who had been a prisoner of the Japanese during the war. He had come near to starvation, and many of his fellow captives did, in fact, die of it. Even now, 60 years later, he says, his story haunts me, though it took decades to explode in my mind as it were. When, for example, I see a grain of rice on my plate, a single grain isolated from everything else on the plate, I think of how precious he would have thought it, how it might once have been the difference between life and death, and I look on it with respect rather than disdain. The waste of food now appalls me. It is said that in Western countries, a third of the food that is bought is thrown away. As in many households, there is a difference of opinion in mine about how seriously to regard use-by dates on packages. For instance, he says, my wife thinks it's instant food poisoning to eat what's time expired even by a day. I, by contrast, think that the whole time-expiry business is a racket, the equivalent of built-in obsolescence to keep people buying unnecessarily. We used to do entirely without such information, after all, and I never knew anyone to suffer from food poisoning. He says, I refuse to play the supermarkets game, even though it does mean that sometimes I have to hide packaging for my wife. One day, no doubt, he says, I may come to regret it. My meanness masquerading as a virtuous hatred of waste might be the death of us especially as we're now older and frailer than we once were. As the Arabs used to say of their conflict with the Israelis, they have to win every time, what we have to only win once. Theodore Dalrymple says, Could we be returning to an age of hardship? Real, material hardship, I mean, not the kind of hardship that people delight to imagine themselves suffering from in order to give significance to their otherwise humdrum lives. He says, For years my financial advisor has been telling me that my old age is secure, but I never really believed him. The value of assets can melt away like snow and sunshine, and in certain cases, assets can even become liabilities. War, inflation, economic depression, confiscatory taxes, there is no such thing as economic security. He says at the outbreak of the Korean War, when rationing some commodities was still in force in Britain, my father bought a large quantity of tinned fruit that he stored in the attic. He thought that there would be much more severe rationing. About 12 years later, the tins began to explode, and for years after that, I used to mock my father in my mind, never out loud, for his overcaution. But he says, now 70 years later, I find myself wondering whether I should lay in commodities like rice or barley, which will at least fill the stomach when everything else is scarce. But then I think that if it were ever to come to the stage at which such stores were useful, the whole system of property would break down and my stores would not be safe from depredation. Moreover, there would be no fuel 
with which to cook them. Anyway, he says it will probably all blow over. In the meantime, I must do my exercises. Apart from anything else, he says, my wife bought me some dumbbells, and now I must put them to use because, like Everest, they are there. Now, maybe this doesn't feel like it applies to you. Okay, so here's this guy in Britain, and he's remembering the old days, and a hungry relative who was held captive by the Japanese during World War II and so forth. But the question of, are we entering a new age of hardship? To me, that's a very sobering question, because I believe that it's very possible that we are. And I don't say that with, uh, you know, oh, we're all victims, and we just have to give up now because it's going to be hard. I think this is a cyclical thing, and I think we've seen other ages of hardship. And as callous as this may sound, you know, it's, it's our turn. If you live long enough, you're going to see interesting times. We are living in interesting times. And this is why I'm doing everything I can to try to persuade people, not to fearfully, but to rationally and methodically do what is within your power to better your situation. Now, if that means learning the skills and going out there and actually gardening for yourself, then by all means, I think that's what you ought to do. If you live in a place that will allow you to have small livestock like chickens or goats or rabbits, maybe that's something you should do. If you live in an area where you can actually, you know, have a, a steer or, you know, raise, raise a cow either for milk or for, for beef, maybe this is the time to, to start doing that at the very least. Have stores of food on hand to provide for yourself and to provide for the people in your immediate circle of influence should a time of shortage come. I was reading a story yesterday about how, um, in, with the, of course, with the conflict in Ukraine, Russia is saying, look, pay us in rubles or pay us in gold or we're not going to send natural gas to Europe. Well, they made good on that. They, they have stopped the flow of at least one pipeline and... You know, this this is natural gas is what heats a lot of the greenhouses, for instance, in the UK, where the weather is inclement all the time. And and, uh, you know, growing food and fresh produce can be a bit of a challenge. And there's a very real concern that fresh produce is about to disappear from the shelves of the grocery stores in Europe. Gosh, as much as I, I don't want to be, you know, spreading fear here, but I do want to spread some awareness and at least get you thinking about what would I do if I didn't have the option of running down to Costco or running to Walmart or wherever and just grabbing whatever I need at the moment? How would I cook the food storage that I have? These are the things you got to think of ahead of time. Plan for it. And, you know, use the food, good times or bad. Barbecue if you've. thought about it that way you know you can use these resources but be prepared for life itself just be prepared this is the brian hyde show this is the brian hyde show hey welcome back to the show I'm sincerely hoping I haven't bummed you out with the idea that, whoa, food shortages, uh, it's a a scary thought. But this is something I'm keeping a very close eye on. And it's, you know, this year, I'm watching the the farmers all around me right now plowing their fields. They're getting them prepped and getting them ready. I'm starting to see the water come on. And it's exciting to see that cycle begin anew. But I'm also just a little bit nervous because 
I know that uh, most of them have already, they've purchased their fertilizer for the year. Costs are much, much higher. That's going to translate into higher costs for whatever the commodity is that they're raising, be it beans or wheat or potatoes or whatever. But next year, I worry that next year is going to be a tough one. I don't want to sit here and dwell on the negative, but if you knew that there were tougher times coming, what would you do reasonably to to get yourself, you know, squared away? And speaking of tougher times, I kind of get lulled into this sense of uh, false security sometimes thinking, well, at least we're past the COVID thing, right? We moved on to the next big thing and we moved on to Ukraine and then we moved on to Will Smith slapping Chris Rock and who knows what the next big thing is going to be. But it looks like in Jen Psaki fashion, um, there are a number of places starting to circle back to lockdowns and uh, in Shanghai right now, 26 million people are locked down. So COVID is not yet off the table as far as a mechanism for controlling populations. I've got Jordan Schachtel's latest from his dossier Substack, something you really should consider subscribing to if you want a good, objective take on what's going on. The title is China Goes Wuhan 2.0, Forcing Shanghai Under Hard Lockdown. The subtitle is True Believers or Another PSYOP. Jordan Schachtel says some 25 months after their infamous Wuhan lockdown, the Chinese government has launched an even more ambitious lockdown campaign, this time in Shanghai, the country's biggest city. And this time the stakes are even higher. The Shanghai lockdown is much more ambitious than the Wuhan campaign, as Shanghai is both bigger in population, size, and in square mileage. Shanghai is also China's financial hub, serving the country's and the world's leading manufacturing and industrial city. The economic ramifications of a potential long-term lockdown in Shanghai would surely be felt worldwide. Coupled with the residual side effects of the Russia-Ukraine war, this shutdown is sure to add even more pressure to an unstable global economy. Now, as video evidence has proven, this is not a mere information operation. Shanghai is indeed fully locked down, and it's been this way for several days. He's got one tweet here from CBS News of drone footage showing near-empty highways and quiet streets in the Pudong district of Shanghai. That coincides with mass COVID testing across China's largest city. Now, Jordan Schachtel says it's worth asking if the Chinese Communist Party is attempting a Wuhan zombie land information op on an even larger scale, or if the Chinese government has really come to embrace the pseudoscience that is lockdowns by reading too much of their own favorable press. That much remains unclear. And there's not much we can do at this point other than speculate on the motives behind the lockdown quackery. One thing is for sure, though, he says, the Shanghai lockdown showcases the horrors of a government regime having complete control over a society. Through COVID mania, China further reinforced its social credit system, adding more surveillance layers to an already heavily authoritarian system. Those systems, such as vaccine passports and biometric movement passes, were not just adopted by China, but by countless Western countries as well. And due to the scale and scope of the Shanghai lockdowns, the CCP is already on the verge of overseeing a very real humanitarian catastrophe. They're already causing a wave of potentially unprecedented starvation and engaging in barbarism that includes the culling of domestic animals, or domesticated animals. 
Yeah, I'm looking at the tweet right now. The Anxi district of Langfang City in northern China on Wednesday ordered the complete culling of indoor animals of coronavirus patients. Meaning, if you were diagnosed, if you if you tested positive for coronavirus, they will kill your pet. And there's been some pretty disturbing video of Chinese officials beating these pets to death. So what, when does this end? And what will be the goal of the global reaction to China's COVID measures? Jordan Schachtel says, hopefully nothing. Thankfully, some, at least some areas of the world, particularly the free regions of America, have become wise to the pseudoscience behind the lockdowns and the other tools purportedly designed to stop people from getting sick. However, he says, much of the world remains propagandized into potentially accepting another round of COVID tyranny. China used its early 2020 lockdown as a political weapon to showcase its apparent political superiority. And the Chinese Communist Party persuaded the West to adopt similar policies that resulted in economic and humanitarian disaster. He says the Wuhan lockdown lasted only a few weeks, but its declared success, in quotation marks, of defeating COVID convinced the vast majority of the world to attempt to replicate the severe restrictions. For two years, China has claimed to have stamped out the coronavirus with a lockdown plus COVID zero policy. But attempts to replicate the measures have resulted in unprecedented disaster for humanity as lockdowns catastrophically failed to stop the spread. So I guess the bottom line here is that the Shanghai lockdown is poised to have global ripple effects. And it's best to keep an eye out for what's to come next from the regime that rules China. I mean, can, can you see the people who are so eager to grasp power here in the U.S. turning down another opportunity to flex on the citizenry and to lock us down again? I don't think it's going to go the way that they think, though. Maybe I'm just reading more into the trucker protests. And, and, and frankly, I live in a part of the country where, um, where normal has been back in fashion for quite some time. When I was considering the possibility of, of making a move to southern Idaho, which would have been starting roughly well, maybe a year, year and a half ago, um, one of the things that really tipped the scales in favor of that was uh, when I went to visit family. And I noticed as I was out and about, I'd go to a restaurant and meet with family or you know, go to the store. And yeah, there were people wearing masks, but it was a very, very small minority. And it still is today. And I don't want you to think that, you know, I think we should ban the wearing of masks entirely. No, if it makes you feel safer, that's great. But let's be clear. It's your desire to feel safe rather than sit there and have government impose this on everybody else. There's a vast world of difference between you doing what it what you feel like you need to do to take care of yourself and trying to use the power of the state to coerce everybody else into doing what you think is the right thing. I'm not ready to go back into lockdowns, and I'm, I'm certainly not about to, to uh, stand for another round of you know forced vaccinations. Truth be told, though, this is still a problem in many areas. Oh, man, New York City. Saw some video over the weekend. Oh, there's the, there's the uh, mayor of New York City out there dancing with people and singing along. Nobody's masked. No, no, but... But uh, they're putting masks. They, they had a court decision that, that said they cannot force uh, these young kids, like five to two years old, to wear masks in preschool. 
And then some judge, I don't know who, <clears throat> stepped up and said, nope, stay that uh, that uh, order. The kids have to wear the masks. I mean, come on. These are the least likely to get COVID in the first place or to be negatively impacted by COVID. I can't think of any reason why people in power would insist on little children being masked especially knowing what we know about what this is doing to contribute to developmental delays and to, to actual harm to the children, except that they just want to assure themselves, nope, we're still in power. We still have the power. You have to do what we say. So what can you and I do about this? All right. Okay. I'm sitting here wringing my hands and that's probably not helping anything. Here's what we can do. Know what your line in the sand is. If you are not sure what that could be, well, I don't know if I have a line in the sand. Okay, then it's time to get to work thinking about what would be your line in the sand. What is the what is the the absolute limit where you would say no more? I will go no further. I will not participate in this because this is a violation of my conscience or my natural rights or my uh, freedom, whatever it is. If you haven't thought about it, I would suggest put the electronic devices away, find a quiet place to think, maybe bring a pencil and paper and write down for yourself. Where would I draw the line? And I mean really think about it. It doesn't have to be the same as everybody else's line. Because you got to figure this out as an individual. Figure out where your line in the sand is. Draw it as clearly as possible. If you're like me, you may look back eventually and go, wow, that line has become a trench. But that's what happens when they keep pushing us, right? Just make the stand. This is The Brian Hyde Show.